Amen. So may it be. Let's uh, have a seat. And we turn this evening to Psalm 32 to continue our study of happiness from this book of Psalms. I'll explain. If you missed the introductory sermons, uh, we come in Psalm 32. My title here above the psalm says, The Joy of Forgiveness. And uh, let's read of the happiness that we have in sins forgiven, starting in verse 1. A psalm of David, that of no small importance. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord... And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come to you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless not only the truth of this psalm, but the joy of it to us, and that we who have received such a great redemption in Jesus may be the happiest people on earth. Happy are your servants indeed, O Lord. You have redeemed and set them free. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, Joel Osteen is the pastor of what's called the largest church in America, uh, down in Houston. His podcast reaches over a million people every day. More than 10 million viewers tune in each week to his service on live television each week. And over 60 million people worldwide hear or watch his digital content each week. In fact, he has his own Sirius XM radio channel, number 128, if you'd like to turn in, tune in on the way home. Yes, Sirius XM 128 is Joel Osteen Radio. People, you see, are almost desperate for what he has to tell them. His particular message and ministry every week. And what is that, you ask? Well, I'll just take the top YouTube sermons of his from a recent survey. They were Peace with Yourself. Don't rely on people. And number one, 
empty out the negative. Whatever else we might be able to say, Osteen is a man who knows what people are desperate to hear. The simple fact is, people are not at peace with themselves. And they have been profoundly hurt by others. And the negativity inside them is killing them. There is a silent epidemic of pain and anger and shame in this country that greatly contributes to the open epidemic of drug abuse and other self-medicating or self-destructive behaviors. Um, Americans spend well over $200 billion, billion B, uh, dollars every year on mental and emotional health. And the cost is rapidly increasing. We seem to be getting worse, not better. Certainly the suicide rates have skyrocketed, increasing 36% so far this century, at least between the year 2000 and 2018, the most recent statistics I was able to find easily. My guess is that since the pandemic, the numbers are substantially higher than that. You see, everyone wants to know where can inner peace, strong and sturdy joy be found. When we turn to the book of Psalms, we are struck with the very first word. The first word we read in the book of Psalms is happy. Happy. And as I've mentioned, this is a deep and durable happiness, one that the world can neither give nor take away. Uh, many translations, like my New King James, prefer to use the word blessed here, which is fine as long as we understand that in the original and in the Greek ancient translation, the Septuagint, as well as in many modern translations today, uh, it, it's the ordinary word for happy. It's why we have in the older version of Psalm 1 in our boo book, how blessed and happy is the man. It's, it's a happy blessedness or a blessed happiness, if you like, that's in view here. Now, we might not always feel so happy. That's the thing. It's not the effervescent kind of emotion that comes and goes. But I tell you, the godly would not trade places with the happiest person on earth who doesn't know God. We have a happiness that the world can neither give nor take away, a profound happiness that's with us on the saddest, most tearful days of our life. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, as I mentioned in the last two weeks, are set here intentionally to form the introduction to this book. The first line of Psalm 1 begins the same way the last line of Psalm 2 ends in this great inclusio. The thing that frames the introduction to this book of Psalms is happy and happy. Psalm 1 looks at the individual life. Psalm 2 looks at the national life. These psalms presenting contrasting attitudes toward God's law and God's son in the first psalm, the righteous person delights in the law, the Torah of the Lord, and will not stand in the day of and will stand rather in the day of judgment. In the second psalm, the righteous rulers and nations are those that kiss the sun and put their trust in God's Messiah. But both of these psalms 
emphasize the happiness of the man who doesn't walk in the ways of the wicked, but in the law of the Lord. The happiness of the man who puts his trust in the Messiah. These psalms describe a life that is deeply and fundamentally happy, permanently happy, even if there are many times of sadness. And I mentioned to you that these two psalms that frame the book with happiness are followed by a long string of laments. So please don't misunderstand me to think that you should be happy all the day. It's not that. But that uh, happiness is the great and the last word for God's people. And even if we don't feel it all the time, these same Psalms, 1 and 2, speak, as you notice, about happiness as well as blessedness, as well as delight, as well as rejoicing, as well as being glad in the Lord and shouting for joy. So even if it's not always an emotion, it is sometimes a very strong emotion that we should be so happy. And as I also took pains to say, uh, God did not give you this desire for happiness to mock you. God gave it to you in order to fill you. It's not wrong to want to be happy. What's wrong is to refuse God's great secret for happiness, which we are learning in the Psalms. In fact, I call this series uh, the Psalms' open secret of happiness, since it makes no attempt to conceal itself. Rather, it introduces itself to us as the answer to what you seek. Today, we are considering the third, hap- the third use of the word happy in the book of Psalms. Uh, if you missed the first one, the, uh, the, the ordinary word for blessed, the Barak word group, uh, that, that's, that's all the way through. That comes all the time. The happy word doesn't come nearly as frequently. It comes in Psalm 1, it comes in Psalm 2, and now it comes in Psalm 32 as the very first word in our psalm. The happiness, the happiness of sins forgiven. Our teacher today will be King David, who is well qualified to instruct us on this happiness. First of all, David was himself a great sinner. He saw another man's wife, he lusted after her, and so he took her. Then he had her husband, an outstanding soldier in his army, murdered on the battlefield. And uh, then he went through this long period he mentions in this psalm of uh, covering it up or denying the matter. David was a great sinner. But, of course, he was also a great saint and a prophet to boot. You notice that in the middle of the psalm, the Lord himself breaks in and speaks. David was a prophet and... Besides all this, he was gifted with remarkable insight into the working of the human heart and mind and soul. Uh, Very few people in history of any stripe have have had the insight into the inner life that David had. He was raised up for this very purpose by the Lord. Now, in this psalm, I say, David teaches us about the great joyful happiness of forgiven sinners, and he isn't coming to us to say, now, hey, I'm a prophet, so you listen up. Or he's not saying, you know, listen to me, I'm the king. David comes to us in a very different mood and manner and speaks to us not from his high pulpit and position as a king or a prophet, but as a fellow forgiven sinner. 
this is what is going to qualify him to speak. He knows of which he speaks. And when we likewise speak to other people about this matter, we shouldn't be on our high horse as though we were anybody, right? For who makes us to differ? We, we must come to people likewise as forgiven sinners to tell people of the joy of forgiveness. William Taylor tells the story of a certain hardened criminal who uh, was condemned to die and waiting for execution. And the Christian people in the town were deeply interested in him and wanted to see his salvation. Pastors of different churches were visiting and talking with him and praying with him. But all they did seemed only to harden him all the more. They were afraid of him. They didn't touch this convict. And the church didn't know what to do. And so uh, Taylor records that at length they thought of a member of the community known uh, by everyone for his holiness and tenderness and wisdom in winning souls. And they got him to visit him. Um, when he entered the condemned man's cell, he sat down beside the prisoner and told him the simple story of the cross. And when he'd finished it, Taylor writes, he laid his hand upon the criminal's shoulder and said to him in a look of inexpressible emotion, Now wasn't it a great sacrifice for the Son of God to lay down his life for guilty sinners like me and you? And in a moment, Taylor records, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the heart of the man was touched and tears ran down his cheeks and then bursting sobs seemed to convulse his frame, and from that time forth he was a different man, and listened to interest with all, to all that was said to him, and would exclaim, to think of such a good and holy man as I knew him to be, putting himself on a level with me, saying, sinners like me and you. Don't imagine that you can speak down to sinners from your high and dignified station and do any good. And if David had come in such a way, we might not have listened to him at all. But David is a man who was very humbled over his sin and who knew the profound joy of forgiveness. And he has a secret of joy, of happiness in his words, a happiness that eludes so much of the world that seeks after happiness in sin. He says, fools, that is what brought me down. I want to tell you of a real happiness, the happiness of sins forgiven. Let's consider the psalm in two parts. Uh, I kind of like the, the, the tune. I, I kind of like, I do like the tune of the psalm we sang earlier, Psalm 32. Do you notice it, it has this minor beginning? Da, 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 da. It's a minor. And then it switches to the major. Da, 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 da. So does the psalm. There is the sadness, but there is the happiness, and happiness is the final word. But let's consider it in two parts. First, the misery of sin, and second, the happiness of sins forgiven. So first, the misery of sin. The misery of sin. Sin brings misery. And uh, it, it doesn't always bring it right away, of course. Sometimes it, it takes a little while. But David describes the cause of his great misery. Uh, and, he, and he does it in three simple words. This biblical triplet that occurs again and again, by the way, uh, three common little words that caused him great pain. 
transgression, iniquity, and sin. And each of these words has a shade of meaning that I'd like you briefly to consider with me, and please don't lose patience. If you were being diagnosed with some terrible illness and the doctor said to you, look, you have a very serious condition and there are three things going wrong in you right now that you need to understand if you need to if you want to get better, you wouldn't say, oh, doctor, why do you have to be so technical and specific? I don't care about the details. Oh, no. You would listen carefully to every word. David speaks in verses 1 and 2 of transgression, sin, and iniquity. First, transgression. Transgression. Uh, the strongest word that uh, has a sense of rebellion or uh, casting off restraint. For example, the northern kingdom of Israel, you remember, broke away from David's son, King Rehoboam, in 1 Kings. And there we read that Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. It's the same word. Israel has been in transgression against the house of David. Rebellion, transgression, same thing. David transgressed against God. He had rebelled Against his commandments, God said, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not bear false witness. David threw these off. You understand transgression, right? Have you, have you ever known that you shouldn't do something and then you do it anyway? Uh, hurting someone in anger, misleading people, telling them a lie, being disobedient and disrespectful to somebody in authority over you. This is transgression, rebelling against God, breaking uh, his commandments uh, in this sense. This is what David is talking about. His first word is transgression. His second word is sin. Sin, which is a uh, general word, oftentimes, if we wanted to summarize all these words, we could just use the word sin, and the Bible uses it that way. But when it is sometimes used in comparison to other words, it can have the sense of missing the mark. I pointed that out to you before, or neglecting your duty of not measuring up or failing to achieve a standard, falling short of that glory of God. So in Judges 20, verse 16, there were 600 left-handed men, curiously, who could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. And it's the same word, not sin. They wouldn't miss. They wouldn't sin. Every shot was right on, on the mark. But David had not been that way. He had fallen far, far short of the glory of God, fall short of the man that God had called him to be. You understand the word sin? Transgression implies you have done something you have no business doing. Sin means you have not done what you, have, what you ought to have done, and you have not been what you ought to have been. Have you ever known what you ought to do and you didn't do it? Jesus said the, the greatest commandment, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Have you done that? Neither have I. This is sin, not doing what we ought to be doing. Have you ever loved your neighbor as yourself? Not for one day, you reply. That is sin. We have not been the virtuous people that we ought to have been, as we discussed this morning. We have not had that purity, that wholeness, wholeheartedness, that sin. David speaks of sin, transgression, sin, and the third word is 
iniquity. And um, I'm sorry, apologies to you NIV readers for some unknown reason. They, they translate this word as sin. The rest of you, I think, have what I have, iniquity. I'll explain. David knows that there is something far, wrong, far more wrong than just the things we have done and the things that we have left undone. It's not just the, the, the sins and transgressions we've committed. David looks inside his heart and soul and mind and describes it as iniquity, the iniquity which has the sense of that which is twisted, distorted, or corrupt. That is to say, there is something perverse in David's very being. It's not just that he sinned. It's that he is a sinner. There has been something wrong, twisted, in the inner room of his soul. He sees envy, anger, lying, deceit, evil thoughts, uncleanness in his nature. Something, do you understand, that can never be made right on the inside. Do you, do you struggle with evil thoughts, lust, rage, jealousy, covetousness, not caring about God? This is iniquity. Before you do anything or don't do anything, there is something wrong to start with. And in these three words, transgression, sin, and iniquity, David is speaking of the things that we do, of the things that we fail to do, and the corruption in the kind of beings we are in every part. This is what was crushing him on the inside. This sin, transgression and iniquity, is what brought him misery. Have you ever thought, I hate myself? Have you ever experienced self-loathing? That's personal guilt. David certainly had that, and for good reason. He describes elsewhere how his sin was always before him and how awful it was to confront what was in him and so forth. But, but David had much more than personal guilt. Because David was a man who knew God. And David knew what he had done was not just about Bathsheba or her husband or even himself. In fact, in, the, in his other psalm, he probably wrote at the same time here, he says, in all this, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. He had sinned against God. He was objectively guilty before the judge of all the earth. And he feared the Lord. And he feared what it means to be called to account by such a God. His spiritual state became pitiful. He was a hypocrite. And sin, although it certainly had its pleasures for a brief moment, and even for a while afterward is... Uriah died, and he had Bathsheba into his house, had her as his wife every day. It was a downhill spiral. It seems these words are describing physical as well as psychological, spiritual, emotional anguish. Uh, it's like that bait, you know, we, we put out for the ants in our house. It's, it's like 99% sugar. It's a 1% poison. And the ants very greedily eat it up. Oh, this is the best. They left sugar on the countertop for us. 
kills them. You don't realize how much sin damages you until it's too late. People then try to find an escape in drugs or other kinds of self-medication. Or they keep the noise up, the noise all the time, the loud music or whatever it is so that they are not left alone with their thoughts. In various ways, they try to drive it out, but more and more, sin brings misery and people languish on the inside. David briefly describes it here. He does at more length elsewhere. My bones grew old, verse 3, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Your hand. It's not just his own guilt. That's bad enough. God's hand heavy upon him. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Well, David not only recognized the problem, something that puts him ahead of most people in this world, David also found the solution. In fact, this sadness that I've lingered on for a while is a crucially important step on the road to supreme happiness. Jesus says those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Blessed are you if you first become very unhappy. Or as we read this morning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, and the emphatic is used, only theirs, theirs alone. Humanity is laboring under a double curse. Not only are we rebelliously and thoughtlessly breaking God's laws, but we are deceiving ourselves as to the true extent of our crime and guilt, which is great. If we feel some measure of that, condemned by sin, and not just lost in delusion, blessed are we. And we need to understand David's diagnosis if we are going to benefit from David's cure. Having considered now the misery of sin, we come secondly to this wonderful triumphant point, which is the point of my sermon today, the happiness of sins forgiven. The happiness of sins forgiven. The index of our sadness will be the index of the joy of our happiness. The very first word, once again, of this song, how it begins, happy, ashray, blessedly happy, Is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, blessedly happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The Bible reserves some of its most thrilling and dramatic language for this. I wish I could spend a little time. But it, in a word, speaks of God casting our sins away and uh, as far as the east is from the West. Um, That is uh, infinitely far, I suppose, since there's no end to either one. Uh, It speaks of things like him casting our sins into the depths of the sea, trampling them under his feet, casting them behind his back, remembering them no more, or the particularly vivid one, nailing them to the cross. You know, when they were condemned as a criminal in the ancient times and crucified, they would put your charge against you for which you were declared guilty, they would put that on the cross. Imagine that which has declared you guilty, nailed to his cross. Here's your condemnation. 
Guilty, sinner, rebel, traitor, treasonous against the king of the universe, nailed to the cross of Jesus. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a great deal more wonderful than we should, uh, when we could realize on our own. But no matter what has caused us to find, the, or seek and find the Lord, as I mentioned earlier, this is where we must arrive first. You call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is, whether you always feel it or not, the deepest need you have. And the more you understand it, the more happy you will be that Jesus has saved you from such a fate to be condemned for that sin. The Church of England's statement of faith called the 39 Articles has this article on justification where it opens up some of this language of imputing sin, as Paul takes it up later also. Um, But it it writes uh, uh, this, I think, very lovely piece here. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Therefore, listen, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Very full of comfort. Wholesome meaning healthy, like mentally healthy included, health-giving, promoting wellness, virtue, beneficial, nourishing, and very full of comfort. He has done it. And now you are in. The devil comes and accuses you. You wicked sinners, which you are. And yet, you can say, devil, I know one that has not sinned. And he has borne the sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. And therefore, the people of God, in the pages of Scripture especially, just sing with joy. Sing with joy at the wonder of forgiveness which God has lavished upon us. Now, especially we know for the sake of Christ and him crucified, that God has become man in order that he might take away our sins. Well, nobody else could do it, but if he has done it, it's done indeed. And the result is what David calls in verse 7 now, songs of deliverance. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me in trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Uh, We read again, Revelation 1, to him who loved us and washed us from from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to our God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Isaiah 12, I will praise you, O Lord, though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you've comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I shall trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, I will draw water from the wells of salvation. And and so with with such songs, again, I wish I could spend the time going through, uh, triumphant notes, songs of joy. Uh, Be glad and rejoice, you routes. Shout for joy, you upright in heart. That's what's going on. David he, he knew the joy of what it was to be honest before God, right? I mean, th- this in so many ways is the big uh, trick, the secret, if you like, to be honest with God. He, he, he kept silent. 
he was wasting away. He conf- he, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, of course, he was actually exposed by Nathan and so forth, but he could have had Nathan's head taken off in a second. He made a, he made a decision, I am going to return to the Lord my God. And he says, that has made all the difference. What a joy it was to be reconciled to my God, not to have to hide, not to have to pretend to be someone else anymore. Sin is our problem. Jesus Christ is our solution. I am reconciled to this God, not as a judge merely forgiven, but as a father well pleased. And Paul, therefore, takes up this very portion of the psalm in Romans 4, a psalm about Christ's gospel, he says, about Christ's forgiveness. And after expounding that forgiveness and how joyful it is, uh, happy is the word he uses there also, markarios, how happy we are that... uh, Christ has forgiven us immediately afterward, he says in Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God would have us to be thankful, cheering, rejoicing, and strong in faith. That's what the psalm tells us. Uh, and how helpful it's been to so many in the years past. Uh, in this psalm was among the seven psalms that Augustine uh, said to have written on the wall beside and above his bed so that he could recite them as he lay dying. You think that uh, uh, what uh, Hobby Lobby came up with this scripture on the wall thing? Oh, no, right? Augustine had th- 32 on his wall in his bedroom. And what a comfort it was to him as he lay a-dying to be able to depart this life with the confidence of God's mercy and forgiveness and grace. And, and, and maybe this is helpful for somebody here. You say, well, I can't believe that God's lo- God loves me. I'm too unworthy. <laughs> and the Bible, unlike Osteen, doesn't assure you, oh, you're not so unworthy as that. I think you're being too hard on yourself. Oh, no, the Bible says you don't know the half of it. God... However, knowing the true worst about us has still loved us and sent his son to take away our sins. Isn't that great? People doubt their salvation. They say, oh, I I just don't love God enough. I just don't trust him enough. I just don't obey him enough. Well, I mean, that's too bad. But understand, God loved you when you didn't love him at all. God loved you when you didn't trust him at all. God loved you when you didn't obey him at all. Christ died for the ungodly, we read this morning. God justifies the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He shall save his people from their sins. That's the truth. All of our sins upon him. Justice satisfied, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And who could find fault with God's own righteousness in Christ? Paul says, we rejoice, we triumph, we boast. There is a deep spring of water and gladness uh, inside us. Uh, sorry, joy and gladness inside of us. Romans 8, uh, he goes on, Paul goes on after he's opened these things up here. Who can bring a charge against us when God has justified us? The one who's going to condemn the world, that man is the one who died and furthermore is raised to life for us. Heidelberg Question 52, what comfort is it to you, 
that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead? What, what comfort is that to you that Jesus will come to judge? Answer, that I with uplifted head do look to come from heaven as judge, the very same one who before offered himself to God on my behalf for my sins and who has removed all curse from me. The joy of sins forgiven. My second point. In conclusion, though, I would like you to notice this unusual uh, occurrence in the middle of the psalm. Actually, it, it does happen with some regularity that in the, in the middle of the psalm, um, David's writing all this about his experience and poetry and all the forth. But, but, but breaking in in verse 8, God himself speaks, said, uh, excuse me, David, I need to take over at this point. I will instruct you, says the Lord, and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like the horse or the mule who have no understanding, which must be bridled with, uh, har rather harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near to you. Don't, don't be stubborn, he says, in the middle of this psalm of, of, the, of the joy of forgiveness. I mean, how tempting it is to, to hear of all this and to have the joy of clear conscience before God, sins forgiven, reconciled, and then to say, but, but not me. Don't be stubborn, the Lord says. Many people in this world don't find David's happiness because they are, in fact, too stubborn, too unwilling to be honest to God, too unwilling to face God's honest truth about themselves. And maybe you need to hear it tonight. You cannot find David's joy until you're able to say, saved a wretch like me. That grief over sin where we started and that confession that must be made to God are, he says, the golden path, the yellow brick road to a truer and far greater joy than can be ever be known by anyone who sins and refuses to grieve a right over his great sinfulness. People are uh, hoping in the legalization of new drugs to bring them new joy. Well, maybe that happiness will last for a night. David has a happiness that will last forever. In Jesus' parable, the tax collector beats his breast and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. That seems rather morbid. But Jesus says, I'm telling you, this man went down to his house justified rather than that proud Pharisee. For you know, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I tell you tonight of a sorrow that leads to greater joy, the great sadness that leads to true happiness in Jesus. Yes, even for Christians, every day, uh, as Alexander White said, we are like that prodigal son every day, always returning home from the far country. We are always saying, Father, I have sinned. And our Father is always saying over us, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And let us rejoice and make merry, for this my son is home. And we can understand all of this so much more clearly than David ever did, although he looked for the Messiah in his way. 
we now see so clearly how God's mercy has come down to earth, how God's loving kindness was born of a virgin, how God's faithfulness has become flesh and dwelt among us, the one who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace should fall upon him. Now, by his stripes, we have been healed. Do not be stubborn. Do not refuse this. If you need to get right with God, please let me help you. Let me pray with you. Most of God's people, writes Robert Murray McShane, are content to be saved from the hell that's without, but they're not so anxious to be saved from the hell that's within. A lot of people, in other words, want to be saved in order that well, one day they may not burn in hell. Well, fair enough. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But David is talking about saving you from a hell within right now. If you want to be saved from that hell within, from transgressions and iniquities and sins, in your conscience, sapping and depleting your inner life, killing you, hindering your fellowship with God day by day, well, Psalm 32 is your guide. It's your encouragement to believe that in such a way, confessing such sins to God and seeking Him, you will find forgiveness and unending happiness. Do you want some feel-good religion, Osteen fans? Spurgeon says, the hill of comfort is the hill of Calvary. The house of consolation is built with the wood of the cross. Grace dug a foundation from which ever gushes the water pure as crystal, every drop capable of alleviating the woes and agonies of mankind. That is true happiness. Happy, happy Happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we who have received such forgiveness would be able more and more to rejoice in that gift that we would see ourselves as brands plucked from the burning. Job, in a time in his day, protested his innocence, and yet when he saw you as you were, he said, I, uh, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Peter, for all of his pride, when he saw the Lord Jesus for who he was, fell at his feet and said, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man if we must again know such sadness, to know such happiness, if this is what it would take to make us even more to rejoice and to glorify our Savior, we, we pray for that. But in any case, we pray, our Lord, that we who have been forgiven much might love much and rejoice much and have great songs of praise, shouting for joy. And we pray for anyone tonight who is, in fact, the one covering that iniquity, whose anguish inside perhaps has been pricked tonight. May they look to you and find happiness eternal in Jesus' name.